Last Sunday morning, we spent our morning together in the major section of the chapter. And as we come to the end of the chapter, we have this rather odd little passage. And the title, or the subtitle rather, in your Bible may say, The Disagreement Between Paul and Barnabas. And so that's where we're going in our study this morning. Acts 15, beginning at verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Let me ask you this morning a reasonably tough question. Have you ever found yourself in the situation where you have messed up so badly that those you love and care for are almost at the point of saying, I will never trust them again? Now, if you have ever been there, our study this morning is for you. Now, I've told you this story before, so let me tell it again. It will not be new to you. The outstanding memory in my mind is when I messed up so badly I never thought I would be trusted again was the occasion when I buried the wrong man. Now, in fairness and in my defense, the man involved was dead. And I think, I think that's more than a mere detail. But I got it badly wrong. What do we do when we mess up and mess up badly? When we're learning to walk at a year or 14 months, of course, we stumble and fall and get up and we try again and we stumble and fall and get up and try again. And our childhood days is often dominated by parents giving us a second and third and fourth chance. Husbands will tell you that wives will give them a fourth and a fifth and a sixth and a seventh chance and an eighth chance to get it right. And excuse me, I may be sharing too much at this point. What do you do when you need to forgive someone again and again? What do we do with the person in work who has an explosive temper? What do we do with a colleague who is simply an irritant, critical spirit, impatient, irresponsible, acts, then thinks? When do we stop extending forgiveness? When do we stop extending another chance? 
How do we deal with that? That is the reality of life. And how do we work out our faith in a way that is God-honoring and Christ-exalting in the midst of difficulties, problems, second chances in a real world? Some of us, of course, have blind spot. We seem to have it all together in a number of areas in our lives, but there's some areas in our life we're oblivious to it. What do we do with that irritable sibling spouse at times who just drives us to distraction? Well, Luke highlights this section in the book of Acts to show us that here is Paul and Barnabas, two great leaders of the infant church, get to a point so serious, so significant, they reach an impasse and in fact separate. And if you've ever found yourself in a tough spot, what are the lessons we can learn this morning that will equip us to live out our faith in the rough and tumble of everyday living? That's where we're going. Let me give you a little of the background. Some of you will remember five or six weeks ago when we started our new series of studies in Acts, we looked at the church in Antioch and God was working in a spectacular fashion. And it was so impactful, in fact, that the church in Antioch, after a period, set Paul and Barnabas aside and said, let's send them to other cities across this region where they can also establish small congregations and watch them grow and develop, just as we did here in Antioch. And so Barnabas and Saul set off for Cyprus, small island, and are determined to uh, make things work. And just as they're leaving, Barnabas says, well, maybe we could take John Mark because we need the help, and I think he would be of value to us, and off they go. But in Cyprus, things did not go as well as they did in Antioch. And in fact, they lived through several tough seasons. So much so that we read in Acts 13 that John Mark leaves in the middle of the night. We're not told why. We're just told it was sudden. There's no explanation. And in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, what happened? Why would he leave? And here we are some time later, let's, for the sake of conversation, and I should have checked this out, sometime in the next 12 months or so, as they have moved on again, they find themselves in Jerusalem, and here is the Apostle Paul saying, maybe we should go back and try and encourage those small congregations who are growing and developing and encourage them a bit. Let's teach them and get alongside and work with them for a spell. And Barnabas says, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Let's take John Mark with us again. And what do we discover? Well, we see it at verse 36. Some time later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where they preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. And then in verse 37, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, but Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and could not continue the work with them. And here is verse 39. Please note this. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Now, what on earth is going on? 
that would cause the apostle Paul to fall out with Barnabas. Barnabas was one of the first to reach out to Paul when Paul came to faith back in Acts chapter 8. Barnabas was the one who had spoken up on Paul's behalf when others were skeptical and suspicious of him. Barnabas had such an impact on Paul's life, so much so in those early days, more than anyone else. And now, disagreement is so intense, they reach an impasse, and they cannot go any further. What is going on? Well, Imagine the conversation in your mind's eye when Barnabas says, I think we should take John Mark. And the Greek language suggests that Paul's response was explosive, which probably means that he was hurt over this. And he explodes. And he says, are you kidding me? John Mark, do you remember when we really needed him in Cyprus and he was nowhere to be found? He walked out in the middle of the night, no explanation. Really? Barnabas, we're going back to encourage. We're going back to equip. We're going back to show commitment and dedication and to help these struggling congregations. And you want to take John Mark? Really? The evidence is crystal clear. And incidentally, Barnabas, whenever you predict someone's future behavior, look at their past behavior. That tells you everything you need right there. Barnabas, a little less hot under the collar, says, well, I'm not so sure. Paul, I understand your heart. I get that. But he's changed He's come a long way over the last few months. He's not the man he used to be. Give him a second chance. Give him an opportunity to prove himself. I think you'll find he's a different kind of guy. Paul says, no. Barnabas, we need a tight, trusting group who we can entirely depend on. And from what I've seen of John Mark, he is not the man. He let us down. He betrayed us. He walked away when we really needed him. I'm just not willing to go there. And incidentally, Barnabas, are you asking John Mark because he's your cousin? And he was his cousin. Now it's becoming very personal. Barnabas looks at him and says, Paul, that's not fair. You know I have helped dozens and dozens and dozens of individuals and families, none of whom were my cousins. And incidentally, Paul, do you remember when you first came to faith on the road to Damascus? Who was it that sought you out a couple of weeks later? Who was it that on your behalf went up to Jerusalem with you and spoke to the apostles and said, this isn't Saul the Pharisee anymore. This is Paul the Christian. He's not faking this. He's not trying to infiltrate us. God has worked spectacularly in his life. He is a new man, a different man. 
Paul in turn says, well, Barnabas, you're right. And there's no one more important in my life right now other than you. But please remember, I proved faithful when the pressure was on. I didn't walk away. John Mark did. Talk about pressure. Talk about impasse. How do you resolve this? Feelings were running high. Emotions were being stirred. Was it possible that Paul could have said to Barnabas, Barnabas, I understand you're close to John Mark. I know you see potential in him. I know that you are fond of the boy. Maybe, how about this? What if we sit down with John Mark? And you can suggest it because he trusts you more than he does me. You can suggest it. What if we put him on probation? What if we say, John Mark, you've got a month. And we want to see a significant change. We want to see you step up your game. We want to see that you're responsible and trustworthy and you're not going to walk away. Let's put him on probation. Good idea. But in the midst of heated argument and emotion running high, no sign of it. Or maybe Barnabas could have said, Paul, what if we give him several tasks to do over the next 10 to 15 days? What if we ask him to arrange our travel schedule, pack the belongings that we need? Begin to write to these churches and tell them we're on our way and we hope to be with you in two weeks and we hope to be with you in three weeks and we hope to get back to Asia Minor and Derby and Lystra and Iconium and give them a heads up we're coming. What if we give them several tasks and see if he's up to the job? And if he is, and explain to him each week, we're going to call him to account and find out what he's been doing and is he the man we think he is? Maybe we should try that. That wasn't mentioned. And here is Barnabas and Paul about to part company. And that whole scene is colored with incredible sadness. And Luke intentionally puts it right there to remind us that from time to time as we are living out our faith, how we live out our faith matters. If we are going to be authentic and credible in our faith, how we live out our life matters. We cannot say one thing and then simply do whatever we like. Now, you may be here this morning saying, Richard, I get it. But that was such a long time ago. How does that help me this morning? Richard, did you know that over the summer, my engagement was broken off? We've been dating for the last two and a half years. We were due to get married in 12 months, and now it's all over. Nothing. All of the hopes, the dreams, the desires. What am, what am I supposed to do now? I'm so wounded and so hurt. What am I going to do? What about giving someone a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance? 
What about forgiveness? What part does it play in the midst of all of this brokenness and pain? What do you do? And some of you are saying, Richard, I know exactly what I want to do. I want to show him up for the person he is. I want revenge. I want everyone to know what he's done to me. I want everyone to know what she said about me. Is that where you are? This morning in your sermon study notes, right at the bottom of those notes, if you've got them, please take them out for a second. And you'll find there a graphic image entitled Natural Emotion Curve. And in the bottom left-hand side, when you find yourself in a very difficult spot where you're hurting and your heart is broken, it often begins with a surprise. Not always, but often. And then it moves to shock. And denial, how can this possibly be happening to me? How can they behave like that? Why are they doing this? And it moves to anger. And you're so angry you can hardly see. And then you move below the line to blame and fear. And how am I going to function? How am I going to recover? What am I going to tell the children? How do you deal with all of that? And then moving towards bitterness, there is no hope. I cannot survive. Then as you begin to turn the corner and go down the other side, you begin to move towards acceptance. And then you adapt. and Begin to focus on a new life, a new circumstance, and you move back up above the line to recovery, and life begins to look normal for the first time in a long time. And then you take action to move forward with your life and put the past behind and you persevere and you keep going and you are committed to a new life and putting the past behind and then eventually you get to passion. And what does that mean? That you are passionate that the past will not determine who you are and what others have said and done to you will not determine your life. All of that is wrapped up in that sense of recovery. Emotional pain, anger, powerless to do anything. Well, if that describes you, let me in the last five to six minutes give you some advice we find in Scripture. We touched on this back in the spring, but it simply was so apropos this morning that I wanted to remind you of it. Now, the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts is in his early days as a Christian. And I want to look at the Apostle Paul in some of his final period of life. And he's writing in the book of Philippians, and he writes these words. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Let me go back to that first part of his passage, and he says this, do not be anxious about 
anything. And you may well be responding by saying, Richard, the Apostle Paul does not know what he's talking about. He has no idea what I've been through. If he had been through what I've been through, he would be anxious about everything. It is the first thing I think of in the morning and the last thing at night. Now, please hear me when I say this and let me say it with all the pastoral care and compassion that I can muster. There are times when in our lives we have been so badly treated and wounded. Our lives are being determined by what has happened to us and we identify more with the wound than wholeness and getting our life back. And there comes a time when we need to stop focusing on the wound Stop allowing the hurt and the pain to dominate our thinking. In fact, psychiatrists often put it this way, and they use the illustration of being an air traffic controller. When you are there controlling the air traffic and the planes are circulating the airport, they make the suggestion that those aircraft should be treated like anxious thoughts, and they can only land and take off if you give them permission. And you either control your anxious thoughts or your anxious thoughts control you. And you know from experience that those anxious thoughts will beat you up every day and twice on Sunday if you let them. And so you need to be mentally tough. And you need to make a commitment in your heart and soul and mind and say, the things I can control, I will deal with. The things that are outside my control, I simply will not let those thoughts land in my mind. And I'm closing the door to them. That takes mental strength. It takes practice, practice daily to put them to one side and refuse to go there. Remember the secret? They will control you or you will control them. The Apostle Paul had received 30 lashes from a Roman whip on three occasions. He was stoned almost to death twice. He was involved in shipwreck and he was about to go on trial for his life. He understands anxious thoughts, but he says, I'm not going there. I will not go there. Notice what he adds, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And what is the outcome? What does he say? And the peace of God, the peace of God, the comfort of God, the very presence of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But it does not come by chance or accident. It happens with discipline and prayer and thanksgiving. But what about Paul and Barnabas and Mark? Well, Mark is mentioned three other times in Scripture. First in Colossians, when the Apostle Paul is recommending him to the church at Colossae and telling them to welcome him, and he's speaking highly of him, which tells us that Paul and John Mark were in fact reconciled. 
Later in the book of Philemon, in verse 24 or 25, he talks about John Mark as his fellow laborer, someone who can be trusted, someone who is dependable, someone that you ought to get alongside and learn from. That's what's going on. And then finally, when he writes the epistle of 2 Timothy, he writes to Timothy and says, bring John Mark to Rome when you come, for he is useful to me in my ministry. Useful to me in my ministry. That was Paul towards the end of his life. Reconciliation had taken place. But my final point for you to take away is this. John Mark also wrote Mark's gospel. How good is that? He was trusted with writing the gospel. He was so highly regarded that he took all that Peter would tell him and he crafted it into the first of the gospels. Talk about getting a second chance. Talk about overcoming weakness. Talk about being trusted again when you have messed up. If you are here this morning watching as we live stream or watching on television and you need a second chance, you will find it right here in the Gospels. That's the beauty of the Gospel. Because he gives us a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance, and a fifth chance, because he loves us, because he loves us, because he loves us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this incredible passage of Scripture. And we fully recognize we have not done it justice this morning. And so we ask that you would take our study this morning, apply it to our own lives in order that we can live out our faith in a manner that is authentic and credible and impact those around us. Father, thank you for your transforming love. And may we live for you this week. For we ask it in and through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.